Relationships all start differently, do they not? Um, I guess if I ask you to think across your family and friends, there would probably be various ways that you got into the relationships and friendships you've got into. When uh, it was the first day of school and Jasmine was starting Hunter House, she said to me just a couple of days before it, she said, but Daddy, what do you say? How do you start friendships? I mean, are there words? And actually, if we think back on it, nobody sat us down and said, these are the ways that you get into relationship. Um, And there's a range of ways that we've done that. I remember one evening in September 1984, uh, doing a mission in Old Park Church. And I was standing at the top of the stairs and um, there was a bit of activity going on in the kitchen just beside me. And this guy came up to me and he said, is Janice Gordon in the building? And I looked at him and thought he was a shady sort of guy. And I'd seen Janice from a distance, though I don't think I'd ever spoken to her before. And I went into this kitchen and I said, uh, Janice, there's a guy out there, I'll not give his name publicly, but uh, he's, he's wanting to chat to you, to which Janice sort of went to try and hide in a cupboard. And um, that was my first interaction with my wife. It was five years later before we thought that that wife-husband thing might be a possibility, but that was how it started. I remember it as clearly as it was a moment or two ago. Why would you remember those things? What brings them to mind? Fascinatingly, in probably the same yardage of kitchen that her father asked her mother to marry her, it gets more and more intriguing. I knew there was something shady with this guy. She confirmed it inside, and I thought, I need to marry her to save her from those kinds of guys. <laughs> That's how that friendship started. I remember it clearly. But there's lots of other friendships I have that I don't remember the first conversation. I don't remember how long it was to have a conversation. And so often within the church, we're called back to that moment when we made a decision for Christ. So often we're brought back to some liturgical prayer that we prayed at a rally or at a meeting or a children's club. And if you don't have that moment, people would question whether you're in or you're out. But in our relationships, we don't think, oh, I don't remember the first conversation I had with them, so I mustn't be in a friendship with them. I say that because mine was a decision. 17 years of age, atheist for about 10 years, coming home one night from a GB outing. The GB plays a significant role in my conversion, and you don't really want to get into all the detail of that. The youth club had gone to meet with the GB in their weekend away. Something was going on in the life of this 17-year-old seeking, searching, And the whole journey home from Port Rush to Ballymena, I looked out at the stars and was asking, okay, do I believe that somebody did all this? And if somebody did do all this, do I want some kind of relationship with them? The next hour was quite crazy, and what went down when I got out of that bus and somebody picking me up to drive me home and telling me all kinds of things that they knew about where I was in that journey. And I said, God, I think you might be there. 
So if you are there, I want some of that. And I say that because for me, that was my entry point. 17, end of rock music, we all need an alternative Ulster, then they cleared off to London. All you need is love, then they broke up two years ago. They were telling me exactly what was needed, but there was absolutely no answers coming. There was no sense of transcendence coming. There must be something more than that, was this 17-year-old thing. And then beginning to think, if this God filled the universe, and somehow this God wants to be connected with me, whoa, why would you believe that God exists and not be involved in that? For me, it wasn't conviction of sin. That came later, and it comes with quite a whoo. But my initial interest was that I might have life and life in all its fullness. John chapter 10, we've already mentioned earlier the shepherd, the voice, the gate for the sheep, the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. But in the middle of that, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life in all its fullness. 10, 10, also the birthday of the boy whose favorite verse it is. So I bring that back to Fitzroy and as a session, we go away and we're thinking, what are we trying to do as a congregation? missionally, pastorally, worship-wise. And we want that fullness. We've been singing about it. We want fullness, 10-10. We want, as Michael has been praying for, even in our businesses across the city, we want a fullness. We want 10-10. We want life and all its fullness for everybody within and those we would meet outside this community. And that is what Paul is on in Ephesians all the way through, but particularly in this section, in the second half of chapter 3. Paul is just all about fullness, 10-10. He's exuberant, he's excited, his sentences are going off without taking a break. Some people say to me, do you ever breathe when you do all that long bit? And Paul's not breathing here. He's so enthused about this possibility of life in its fullness that he goes off on one again. The poetry, the prayerful language. Paul is excited about a fullness that comes when Christ dwells in us, dwells in us to the fullness of his humanity and his divinity. Eugene Peterson um, because we're, if you're a visitor among us, we're going through Ephesians and we're kind of taking Eugene Peterson as the reels that we're walking through. His angle in this, and you take different commentators' angles, you get different ones. And Eugene Peterson's we've been finding is about the church and how the church can be what the church is meant to be. That's how his uh, practice resurrection takes us. Peterson would go on that verse and uh, that those few words in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, as a kind of a central point, he would say, to the entire peace. The idea that glory would indwell the church in Christ, 
and that you can't separate the church and Christ. The church and Christ are mentioned 11 times in the same three words in, in the book of Ephesians. For Paul, the church and Christ go together. You can't have the church without Christ indwelling. You can't really have Christ in the world without some kind of church because that's how God has decided that he would um, be the body of Christ now on earth would be that church. So I looked up glory to see what that might be. Um, glory, glory, Manchester City would obviously be something that I would know of in, in the back of my mind. But uh, what does this glory mean? And there was actually um, on the net about eight different things you could say. Great honor, praise, distinction, um, renown. Then secondly, something conferring honor and renown again. A highly praiseworthy asset. Um, it says then in brackets to just use that. Your wit is your crowning glory. Your Zumba could be your crowning glory. Then adoration, praise, thanksgiving. And then I think the three that probably Peterson's looking at as he looks at Paul's letter here in Ephesians. Majestic beauty and splendor, resplendence. The splendor and bliss of heaven, perfect happiness. The height of achievement, enjoyment, and prosperity. A sense in this word glory of life in all its fullness. The best of life, the best of heaven here on earth. And Paul is praying at the end of Ephesians that that glory would be in Christ and in the church. The two linked so closely together. On Friday night, we had an amazing night here of literature, um, poetry by Padre Gautuma and a novel by Shirley Ann Milburn. It was just, it was one of those nights you put on something that's uh, creative and artistic and church comes out of the middle of it. Um, that becomes obvious when Padraig quotes Hebrew and Greek and then gives us a few angles on the Irish and brings those into poetry that's rooted in the exile and his um, postgraduate work on the Gospels. Um, it, 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 there was fullness. It wasn't just a few rhyming couplets when you get to Padraig. But in the middle of it, he uh, actually, I think it might have been even in the question time he was asked something. And he quoted Arrhenius who said, the glory of God is a human Arrhenius used the word man, but we're in 2012. Um, the glory of God is a human fully alive. You see, when Jesus was saying, I've come that they might have life in all its fullness, it wasn't that Stockman would get the sort of the, the buzz of having God in his life for his own selfish ends. God wants to be alive in Stockman's life because glory the glory of God as a human being who is fully alive. Arrhenius goes on, and the life of the human consists in the vision of God. If we want life in its fullness, then it needs connected with God. And the glory of God comes alive in the world when it's fully at work within us. We're not here so that we would somehow get a kick out of being connected with God. We're here that God's glory might indwell the earth through his church. And so Peterson looks at this fullness of Christ as being the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ. And um, he sees a danger if we lose either of the two of those. Uh, Peterson says the tension within the church down through the centuries has been keeping the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ together. Um, he says there's a loss of humanity uh, when we lose sort of, sorry, the humanity of Christ. When we lose that fact that Jesus was human, fully human, 
Then we lose locality, personal relationship, and the incarnate contextualization of Jesus. Jesus lived, he breathed, he walked, he sweated, he tired, he was fully human. But if we lose the divinity, then we lose the cosmic salvation plan that we've been thinking about all the way here through Ephesians. We lose transcendence, we lose hope, grace, and forgiveness. So I was thinking about that this week. I was drawn to Jim Wallace, who would be an influence in my life. Jim Wallace, Christian social activist in America, founder of the Sojourners community, author, friend, and agitator of presidents would be a good way to talk about Jim. And Jim, when he came to uh, Northern Ireland a few years ago, spoke to my students. And uh, he told us something about a story that I found intriguing. I think I've shared it with you before, but not in this context of Paul and Peterson thinking about the humanity and the divinity and the fullness of Christ. So bear with me. Jim Wallace told my students that he grew up in a very conservative evangelical church. And, um, and, and when he got to his mid-teens, he started to ask questions about the people down the street, the black people, the poor people, the marginalized people. And he was told by members, elders in his congregation, Listen, Jim, don't you worry about that. Church is about prayer and studying the Bible and getting souls saved. You don't need to worry about the social conditions of people down the street. In essence, that church had lost the humanity of Christ. It was all very divine. It was all about souls saved for eternity. It was all about this spiritual stuff, but they'd lost flesh and blood, the locale, the context. And as a result of them having lost the humanity, Jim Wallace decided to ditch the divinity. He left the church. And he went off to university and he told my students that during the Vietnam protests, he could put about 10,000 people on the streets of cities around him within 10 minutes. Now, he had no texts, he had no Facebook, he had no email, but he was able somehow, by the connections between university activists at that time, Jim said, I had the power to put thousands of people on the street in minutes. And then he discovered what he was involved in was too human and missed the divinity. And he said he went back to the church and back to Christ and back to Christianity because all the human relationship, local, organization, protest missed something if it didn't have the transcendent. In that story, we see someone who realized the tension that we need to have between the human and the divine. This morning we have launched, I think, a major project. For some of us, including me, a scary project. The human says health and safety. The human says lots of damp. The human says, awful kitchens. At least many of you have said to me, awful kitchens. And if you turn the tap, just go in someday and turn the tap and see what we are living in in 2012. The human says it would be great to fix that. The human says, here, let's do this. And then the human gets a wee bit excited and says, what if we used that extra 10 feet of land that we have here and did something with it? What if we had these rooms that weren't being wasted but could be used for... Bible class and for Sunday school and for youth club and, and for a 4S club and what if Nightreach had a better place to do their mission from and what if more of the local community and the human starts to without the divine in this it's going to be even more frightening 
without believing that this is of God, then I, for one, wouldn't even start the process. Because it seems to me almost beyond my imaginings at this point in time. But Paul, in Ephesians 3, talking about the indwelling of Christ and the glory of God in humanity and in Christ, says that this God that we're praying to can do imaginably more than we ask or more than we can imagine or ask. We need the human. We need to sit down and we need to meticulously look at figures. Hopefully with Michael and Garth and various others, this uh, fundraising team will look at figures. How can we make this happen financially? We need to think seriously. We need to be wise stewards. We need to think, what architect do we need and, and what quantity surveyor do we need? We need to think, what are the needs of the community at this point in time? That's all the human part of it. And then we need to make sure that it's not us coming up with a project that we're asking God to bless. That God is in this, speaking to his people, giving us that X factor that says this is a project that will be fully human and fully divine, bringing glory to Christ and the church. Paul says all this in these wonderful words of prayer. And I decided during the preparation of this that rather than keeping you to a quarter to one like we did last week, that this is a night for um, in God's front room. In God's front room, this new event that we're irregularly doing in the evenings, we've been looking at the mysteries of life and the contents of the heart, and we looked very much at the contents of the heart last week. This is almost both. It's the idea of what is prayer and how does prayer deal with our heart connection with God and, and how does the mystery uh, deal with the, the contents of our heart. So we will explore that a little bit more later on. But enough to say this as we come to our conclusion. When Paul says in verse 14 to kneel in, that he kneels in prayer, the kneeling in prayer is um, a kind of a, a way that physically Paul decides, I'm going to surrender, I'm going to become dependent, I'm going to become vulnerable and defenseless in the presence of God. Kneeling. It's not just a poetic idea. It has got real content to the way that our hearts and our souls and our minds, and maybe more our bodies should, kneel before God. Paul was just telling me before that a couple of weeks ago at Nightreach, there was uh, four um, people who came in to use the church to pray. Um, four young Catholic students from the area who just wanted time and space to pray, um, that they came and they knelt in the church in that Catholic way of kneeling. This kneeling has got its own fundamental spiritual truth in it, that when we come before God, we kneel, we get rid of all our egos, our self-centeredness, and we become vulnerable and defenseless, and we surrender to God, and we allow God to do what this book has been telling us all along, him to move among us rather than us trying to move for him. But quickly, um, Peterson brings out two words here that I think are fantastic in his own poetic way of bringing this out. When we come to prayer, and the interesting thing here in Ephesians 3 is, Paul's not talking as I would a lot of my time about prayer. When we come together on a Wednesday lunchtime, more would be welcome. 12.30, just in the parlor there. It's great to come on a Wednesday. Monday night for the prayer fellowship, my day off, but they would really love people to come in and pray more as a community. When you're praying in your uh, small group or whatever else, it's really important that we're a church at prayer. Many of those times we come and we pray for situations. 
This week we've been remembering Philip Orr, who lost his father last Sunday. We've been praying for Philip. We've prayed for those who grieve. We pray for those who are not well. We pray for those who are going through stress. We pray for those who have worries in their families. We pray for pastoral needs. In this particular book, Paul doesn't pray for pastoral needs. He uses prayer as this other... Um, it's, it's praying for the fullness. It's not praying for those of us who are... That doesn't mean it's wrong to do that. It's just the context of this particular letter. But what Peterson says is that when, when, um, when uh, Paul comes to pray here, he comes in the plenitude of God, not the penury of humans. Now, like some of you, I'm going, what? What is plenitude? What is penury? So I had to go away and I had to look up that. And what he's saying is when we come to pray to God, when we come to connect, and he would see that as much more than in your quiet time or in your prayer time, he would see that as every interconnection, every meditation, every time that God comes into your life and your thinking, you're in some kind of prayer. He says we come in that time to the, in the plenitude of God. The abundance of blessing would be a good way to define that. An ample amount, an abundance. When we come to pray, we come to God in his abundant fullness. We come in plenitude. Not in the penury of humans, which is destitution and insufficiency. When we come to pray, we don't come in our own patheticness. We come into the presence of God in all his glory. And it's a good thing to remember. Four intercessions in this particular passage. In verse 16, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. In verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you read today's hymns when you go home in the order of service, it's in there the whole way down. The humanity and the divinity of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Well chosen as always. In verse 18, the power to comprehend the love, the breadth, the width, the height of God's love. In verse 19, to be filled with all the fullness of Christ. These are not about pastoral worries. Our problems don't define us. The plenitude of God, the abundance of God's blessing defines us. As Snow Patrol says in our pastoral problems, that is not all that we are. When we come through the waters of baptism in our new identity, we come in to the family of God. We're defined in him, not in our own weaknesses. And so to finish, let me tell a story that Peterson tells. Addie is a little Haiti girl who needed parents. And Peterson's friends, Fred and Cheryl, went down to Haiti to pick Addie up. And Addie was living in real poverty, real struggling, didn't know where her next meal was coming from, was fearful of all that, and she's picked up and taken on this airplane to this new life in North America. And the first time she was introduced to her brothers, they all sat around a meal table and they had chicken wings and potatoes and all kinds of stuff. And these two teenage boys, Addie was about five or six years of age, uh, her teenage, her new teenage brothers devoured the plate like a ballerina man in front of potatoes and chicken. And the mother Cheryl could see immediately in that first meal that Addie was a little bit concerned and fearful because the food had disappeared so quick. There was an abundance of food, but it just cleared. And she could sense that actually what the girl was worried about was that this was the food for the weeks that were to come. And so she took her by the hand and she led her into the kitchen and she opened the cupboards and she showed her the food. And then she took her to the fridge and she opened the fridge, big American fridge, eh? You know, those ones with the ice coming down. I would love one of those. Uh, committee, put that down. Anyway, um, 
opened the fridge, both doors, and there it was full of all this food. And then she took her outside into the garage, and garage nearly stood there because we're in North America, and she opened the freezer, and there's more food. And what she was doing for this little child at five years of age is she was saying, you come now into this family with the plenitude of all that we have. You don't have to worry about the next meal anymore because it's there in abundance. You don't have to be concerned when the table's cleared. You can get rid of that fear because we have plenty. When we come to pray about a building, we might need to go back to that story many times, the financial strain that it might be over these next few years. But in your own life, in my life, in the life of our fellowship, as we come in this idea of connection to God, in relationship with God, oh, you don't need to remember that first conversation in a kitchen in a church hall. Whatever way you've come into this relationship with God, however you communicate with Him, however you listen to that God, in Jesus, in the fullness of Christ, we come with plenitude of God, not the penury of who we are. As Peterson puts it, we pray in a household of extravagance. Let us pray. Our God, give us a vision of who you are and give us a vision of what it would be like to live as full human beings, bringing glory to you as the splendor and majesty and abundance and blessing of God dwells within us as a community, within us as individuals. We long for the fullness of Christ in the humanity where he wept at his friends passing away, where he sweated in fear at the thought of the cross, to the divinity as he raised his friend from the dead as he himself was raised from the dead. We want to bring the full humanity of incarnation and a Jesus at the right hand of the Father into our lives and into our community. Help us to see that we pray in a household of extravagance. Lead us, we pray. May we hear the shepherd's voice and follow. In Christ's name, amen.